0: It's Tuesday, July 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Pandemic reality check. We are getting further away from the end than we should be. To be clear, it is nowhere near as bad as it was at the height of the pandemic. But once again, numbers are trending in the wrong way. Infections are going up, hospitalizations and deaths are going up, and in some places like LA County, mask restrictions are being reimposed. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, Jeff Bezos and his company Blue Origin are set to take off to the edge of space. While this is a similar mission to the one that Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic carried out, the four passengers of Blue Origin will be taking off in a rocket straight up into the air and fall back down in a capsule after floating in microgravity. Morgan Brennan, co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk on the Street, joins us for the next entry into space tourism. Finally, 18-year-old Kara Eaker is the first U.S. athlete to test positive for COVID-19 after arriving in Tokyo for the Olympic Games. She is an alternate for Team USA Gymnastics and has been taken to a hotel to quarantine until she tests negative. While vaccination rates are low in Japan, about 85% of the delegations are expected to be vaccinated. Tina Reid, healthcare editor and author of Vitals at Axios, joins us for this early test to Olympic COVID protocols. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: So the picture here at the, you know, in late July is not as good as, as I thought it would be. And as some experts thought it would be just a couple months ago. And so uh, we got to kind of reframe
0: where we are in this pandemic. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Hey, thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about a series of reality checks that I think we need for what's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic. The sad news is that it seems that we're further away from the end than we should be. We've been seeing rising cases, rising hospitalizations and deaths, unfortunately. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with vaccination rates. You know, we're not completely there where we should be. But Joel, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing out there.
1: Yeah, So just a couple of months ago, I wrote a story in the post saying, hey, everyone, it's now okay to discuss as a concept the end of the pandemic. And that's because there were models coming out showing that the numbers might get really low in the summer in terms of the number of infections and hospitalizations and deaths and all that. And the numbers did go that direction for many weeks there, and including globally, that things were trending better. But The Delta variant did not help at all. It is definitely more transmissible. And what happened with the vaccinations, they they kind of ran out of some of the momentum as people who are reluctant to get vaccinated for whatever reason have not gotten their shots. And so what you have is you have a very, still a very large cohort of people who are susceptible to the virus and you have a more contagious virus. So the picture here at the, you know, in late July, is not as good as as I thought it would be and as some experts thought it would be just a couple months ago. And so uh, we've got to kind of reframe where we are in this pandemic.
0: Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. You know, I live in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles County this past week announced that they had to reinstate indoor mask requirements for everybody. This is regardless of what your vaccination status is. And, you know, these are the things that nobody wants to go back to. And, And nobody's arguing for much more than that right now, it seems like. But the public health officials say nothing is off the table. You know that's always kind of the thing, and and that's kind of one of the troubling spots. There's people that have been vaccinated say, well, I don't want to go back to it because people aren't getting vaccinated. But these are the worries, these are the precautions that health officials take, and that's what we don't want. But we're starting to see it again.
1: Yeah, look, it's you know putting the mask back on is is a drag. No one wants to do it. You know, the problem is we're still in the middle of a public health emergency. I mean, the emergency definitely got dialed down once we got the vaccines out to a large part of the population. Let's not exaggerate the fact that, I mean, although things are trending in the wrong direction, it's still a lot better than it was in the winter, you definitely. know, better than it was in January. Definitely, There is a lot of truth to the idea that we have kind of two parallel pandemics. Uh, we have a bad pandemic for the unvaccinated and one that is less threatening to life for the rest of us. So I've been vaccinated, and I'm not concerned that I'm going to get COVID and die. And I think people who, are, who have some immunity, some protection, should understand that the worst-case scenario is less likely. You know, there's no guarantees in life, and people who have, are vaccinated Some people still do die of COVID. They may have an underlying condition. The long-term scenario, which we tried to get into in this article, is that you can build up immunity in a population and a virus like SARS-CoV-2 should, over time, gradually become more like the flu or even a bad cold, which is what happened with the 1918 influenza virus. But we're not there yet. It's still circulating in a population that has many, many people who are have no immunity. There are people who may have had some immunity from the initial wave of infections more than a year ago. How much immunity do they still have? I mean, I uh, we don't know, but reinfection is a possibility. Other coronaviruses, after a year, you can get reinfected. Their antibodies wane. And so... I think we're gonna be dealing with this for a while. And the one thing that like every single health official has said to me is, you know, we need more vaccinations out there. We need to do better at the population scale. And then at the individual scale, yeah, I I think some of us are gonna have to rethink whether we wanna eat indoors in a crowded place. You know, how do we feel about events with lots of other people there? I, you know, personally, I'm okay if it's outdoors, but I, you know, even though I'm vaccinated, With the numbers going up, I think it's time to be a little more cautious and to to be prudent about it.
0: Right. And even for those that are vaccinated, right, uh, everybody says that's kind of the key that we're hoping to get those rates up. There have been some breakthrough infections, but thankfully for those people, they're spared the most severe cases of this. And, uh, you know, the CDC, I think, is only tracking these breakthrough infections if it gets bad enough where you have to go to the hospital. So the majority of people aren't getting it that bad after they've been vaccinated at least that's the that's the good news
1: that's right and so that's another really big wild card here which is those of us who are vaccinated what are the odds that we will get infected anyway and infected enough that we actually are symptomatic and symptomatic enough that we need hospitalization i think people need to know that the vaccines are great, but they don't make you totally bulletproof. I mean, the vaccine has, you know, some of these these variants, they can evade some of the antibodies. I think the Delta, that is more contagious. I mean, there's the Delta, there's the Beta, there's the Gamma. The Beta and the Gamma, I know, have some mutations that enable it to evade the antibodies a little bit. I'm not sure about the Delta, but it's, you know, as this is going on, you want to be prudent, even if you've been vaccinated. Yeah. I think because also you don't want to you don't want to be a vector for spreading the virus to someone else right. who isn't vaccinated and who could have a bad outcome.
0: Joel Achenbach, science reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. People say they see the thin limb of the Earth's atmosphere. It teaches them how fragile and precious the planet is, how there are no boundaries. I don't know what it's going to do, but I'm excited to find out.
0: Joining us now is Morgan Brennan, co-anchor of Squawk on the Street on CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Morgan.
2: Thanks so much for having me on. What an exciting moment for uh, the space nerds and really just The world right now is all eyes turned here to West Texas.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we already went through this last time with Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic flying up to the edge of space. Now it's time for Jeff Bezos and Amazon and, and, you know, his company Blue Origin to do this. They're actually going a little further than Richard Branson did, and they're actually doing it in a different manner. This is a a rocket's Mm going to fly straight up versus the way Richard Branson did it kind of in a two stage airplane thing. So Morgan, tell us a little bit about what we're expecting to see out of Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos.
2: That's right. So both of these companies and both of these spaceflight systems are suborbital trips to space. So basically just past the edge of space. But as you mentioned, it's two very different processes in terms of how that happens. So with Blue Origin on Tuesday morning with Jeff Bezos and his three crewmates, they're going to be loading into the new Shepard capsule, which is going to be sitting atop a reusable rocket booster. It's going to do a vertical launch, so sort of more like those traditional rocket launches that you see at Kennedy Space Center over the decades, for example. They are going to blast up past what's called the Kármán Line. This is the internationally recognized start of space. It's about 62 miles altitude. They're going to go above that, unbuckle for a few minutes of weightlessness, float around the cabin, see the curvature of the Earth, then strap back in as the pull of gravity brings them back down. Toward the Earth, they're going to experience something like five G's of force. So, similar to like a fast or really powerful roller coaster. And then parachutes deploy from the capsule, which has already separated from the booster on the ascent. And they're going to land back here in the West Texas desert. And that that booster, that rocket, is also going to land a few minutes prior. So, very different process than Branson, who was air launched, went up in a space plane that was launched at about 45,000 feet under a what they call a mothership mothership eve named for his own mother which fired off its rocket engines and then barreled up about 53 miles in altitude eight days ago
0: let's talk about the crew members who's going to be up there the interesting thing about this is that is the the actual mission itself is fully autonomous so nobody's going to be flying or (laughs) doing anything specific but there's going to be four crew members going to be jeff bezos his brother mark bezos and then some two interesting people Who, who else is coming on board so Wally
2: Funk, who is an aviation pioneer and had started the training process as a Mercury 13 member, one of the women who back in the 1960s started going through physical examinations in the beginning of astronaut training alongside the men, it was a program that was ultimately scrapped. So she never actually made it to space. This has been a lifelong dream for her. Eighty two years old. When she goes to space, she will become the oldest person to have done so. So that in of itself is historic. On the flip side, The other passenger, the fourth passenger, is Oliver Damon. He's Dutch. He's 18 years old. On this trip, if all goes according to plan, he would become the youngest person to ever go to space. He's also the first paying passenger for Blue Origin, which, in addition to that being notable for Blue Origin, which with this mission now is officially launching its commercial service as a space tourism company, it's notable because it's the first time ever we've seen a U.S. company put a paying passenger into space.
0: Obviously, you know, as you mentioned right now, too, space tourism, this whole suborbital flight stuff, all of this is coming into focus. I think Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX has plans to do something a little bit more uh, into actual orbital space tourism. But this is what they're hoping to do. This is kind of the future that they're envisioning.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of skepticism, criticism out there. This whole idea of like billionaire boys with their toys. And certainly you're talking about some very audacious and visionary men, whether it is Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson or Elon Musk, when you're talking about their space exploits and the quite literally billions of dollars that they have all poured into their own space companies over the last couple of decades. That being said, Bezos has been saying it repeatedly, he said it again today, that for Blue Origin, this is really the first piece in a broader vision to build a road to space, this idea of inspiring and enabling future generations to basically be able to colonize the final frontier. It's a very similar situation for Elon Musk as well with Richard Branson. He too has this longer term vision for space. I would say though, with Virgin Galactic specifically, while space tourism is sort of the near term next couple of years, uh, situation and business proposition for that company, longer term it's hypersonic and supersonic travel point to point around earth as well, which is part of the reason why it was designed as a space plane. This.
0: Yes. Space economy really is about $420 billion. How much are the tickets going for Blue Origin uh, right now?
2: Oh my gosh, that is the $100,000, multi-million dollar, <laughs> put, right. put any dollar amount next to it question. I asked Blue Origin's head of astronaut sales, Ariane Cornell, again in the past 24 hours, what those prices are going to look like now that they have opened up ticket sales and they've announced that they're going to do two more flights. With people on board behind this one before the year is out. Still no details. All we know is that the winning bidder of an auction that took place ahead of this flight for a seat was $28 million. That person, because of quote unquote scheduling conflicts, is sitting out this flight. That's how Oliver Damon made his way onto tomorrow or onto Tuesday's mission. We know that that's sort of like probably peak price because there was a premium attached to that and the bragging rights. Last time, Virgin Galactic, which is most comparable to Blue Origin sold tickets is $250,000. I think the expectation, at least according to analysts who are studying this as a business, a future emerging business, and, and given the fact that Virgin Galactic, for example, is also publicly traded stock, the expectation is that you're probably going to look at 400000 to $500,000 per ticket. But regardless of what that price ends up being in the near term, longer term, whether it's Branson or whether it's Bezos. The game plan here is to bring those costs down. So very similar trajectory expected to what we saw in the early days
0: of aviation. Yeah. Morgan's going to be on the air on CNBC, on Squawk on the Street, covering all of this while it's happening. So make sure to tune in and check her out there. Morgan Brennan, co-anchor of Squawk on the Street and CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you so much. We conducted an uh, immediate uh, request uh, to, isolate uh, to isolate themselves.
1: And all the members of the group are following the instructions.
0: Joining us now is Tina Reed, healthcare editor and author of Vitals at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Thank you for having me. The Tokyo Olympics are set to start on Friday, and we've already heard about several athletes that have tested positive for COVID 19. Following their arrivals in Tokyo. But we just heard about the first USA team member to get COVID 19. This is an alternate for the US women's gymnastics team. So, Tina, what are we hearing about all this?
3: So, Kara Aker is an alternate on Team USA's gymnastics team. And this is obviously a huge bloat because now folks are obviously worried about who might have been her close contacts and how many others might be under the COVID protocol, I think the biggest thing to point out is that Olympics officials said that they didn't expect there would be COVID cases. So with all the testing that's happening, this is exactly what I think folks were expecting to see as athletes actually started arriving.
0: So uh, some of the, uh, the safety protocols, if we could talk about that they have in place there, my understanding is that the plans there are supposed to be so good because they made these plans kind of with the thought that nobody would be vaccinated. Obviously, vaccination rates are really low in Japan, but the athletes' vaccination rates are supposed to be a lot better.
3: Yes. So the IOC has said that about 85% of the delegations coming from around the world are expected to be vaccinated. It's a little bit lower among, for instance, like international press. It's a little closer to 70%. So basically within that bubble... There's a lot of vaccination, but they did do the planning thinking that nobody would be vaccinated. So they are doing daily testing on athletes and those who are in direct contact with the games. Those who have a little less contact with the games are tested a little less frequently, but they also have protocols such as social distancing of people. They've been focused on ventilation. They've told me that they're just, they're taking multi-layered approach so that They're not depending on necessarily one tactic to prevent the spread of COVID, but many.
0: Let's talk a little bit about ventilation, because, you know, while a lot of stuff does happen outdoors, there's going to be many, many cases where people are inside. And, uh, you know, a lot of public health experts are saying, you know, did they focus enough on this aerosol transmission of COVID-19? Is there that proper ventilation? And and I think uh, you mentioned in the article, too, air conditioning is not ventilation. So it's very important.
3: So the IOC officials told me that a lot of the buildings that the athletes will be in are brand new buildings. And so they have new ventilation systems that have a good deal of air exchange happening. It's not just air conditioning, but it is a, a, an air exchange system. However, there are a lot of older buildings in the Olympic Village. And in those cases, they are going to have to depend on opening windows and bringing in temporary ventilation system. And that's where infectious disease experts start to get a little concerned. Some of the folks that I've spoken with say there are just too many places where COVID could potentially fall through the cracks.
0: It's an interesting time, obviously, for the Tokyo Olympics already being delayed a whole year. As I mentioned, the vaccination rates there in Japan are pretty low. And there's a lot of people in the public that don't really want the games to go on. I know. Public health officials there have warned caution. I mean, all eyes are going to be on them, not just because it's the Olympics, but to see how all of this gets handled.
3: What I would say is, while there is a pretty low vaccination rate in Japan right now, 22 percent of the population is fully vaccinated. Another one of the large concerns is just the transmissibility of the Delta variant. The IOC has definitely put a has a lot of pressure on it to make sure their COVID protocols work and that they are keeping it out of the local population and I think that's what we're all going to be watching closely is if ultimately they are able to keep it from being a super spreader event.
0: Tina Reed, healthcare editor and author of Vitals at Axios, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.